Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issue proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment, and the forthcoming novel, Missionaries, out in October from Penguin Press. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media, and me, the knocker-off of Tall Hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Today we have a very special guest, Elliot Ackerman. Met Elliot, got almost uh, close to a decade now. Um, all I knew about him was he was a Marine, didn't really know much about what he'd done, the really remarkable uh, career that he'd had in the military. Um, something which he uh, didn't really talk much about um, uh, in, in, in ways that sort of other people might <clears throat> let you know quicker. Uh, since then, he's produced a, a really tremendous body of work, uh, Green on Blue, a beautiful novel written from the perspective of an Afghan uh, and a militia, uh, Dark at the Crossing, set on the Turkish border and in Syria, um, Waiting for Eden, uh, about two Marines, one of them, is dead, one is seriously injured. Um, a uh, memoir of sorts, which we're going to be discussing, um, uh, a piece of it, or at least a sort of adapted piece that ran in the New York Times. And his latest novel is Red Dress in Black and White, uh, a novel about a marriage uh, in sort of complicated circumstance during the, uh, uh, the protests in, in Istanbul. Um, he is a hell of a writer uh, and also um, I think perfect to have him discussing uh, Ernst Jünger's On Pain um, because I'd say he's probably uh, the closest that we have to uh, Ernst Jünger writing today in the 21st century. Um, uh, and um, yeah, anything? Uh, it sounds like Phil is suggesting that Elliot has a, a quasi-Nazi background, <laughs> but I just want to clarify that's not what he meant by similar to Ernst Jünger. There, there is no complicated relationship with any form of national socialism. <laughs> I, I would say Elliot is the kind of uh, writer who is so prolific that if he um, wasn't so talented, I would um, despise him. For being as <laughs> prolific as he is, because it's you, you know you feel like there's some sort of Faustian bargain involved. But uh, as a phenomenal writer, and very happy to have him on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Real pleasure. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, sort of your first exposure to Younger and um, you know basic feelings about him? Elliot? You know, I, my first exposure to Ernst Younger was through his his memoir, which is probably his most famous book, uh, which is The Storm of Steel. And um, I read it not knowing a whole lot about him. Um, I think it was while I was still in the service, I read that book. And one of the things that struck me by it, about it was it was such a powerful counter narrative on the First World War. And so, um, uh, and what I mean by counter narrative is it, you know, 
so much of the First World War literature kind of hues to that lost generation motif of, you know, the the horrors and, you know, the, as Owen said, the pity, you know, I read about the pity of war. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. And like, there's no pity in, <laughs> in Younger's writing. I mean, you know, not, not even close. Um, and no sense of betrayal by, uh, you know, you don't, that lost generation sense of being betrayed by, uh, by an older generation sent off to the Toronto house. No, it's just, and it's not that he like comments on that necessarily. It's just that he, um, he goes to a lot of places that other, other writers don't go, uh, in terms of the first world war. And he writes, he wrote about it, I think in a very, in a very different, in a different way. But it's more is if you sort of know anything about his bio, I mean, he really has a much thicker and more robust bio than so many of the other writers who uh, are very, who we know about uh, in terms of writing uh, on that subject. So, um, so that is sort of what I think for me always, you know, maybe like stand up and pay, pay real attention to his counter narrative. Like for example, I've got it up here at the end of his book. This is not the very end of his book, but it's in like the last three or four pages of storm of steel. And he writes, Hardened as scarcely another generation ever was in fire and flame, we could go into life as though from the anvil, into friendship, love, politics, professions, into all that destiny had in store. It is not every generation that is so favored. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's not what you typically get from the Force of War. It's not a theme that yeah. is unfamiliar in writing about war. Like, I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes has his famous, famous, um, touched by fire speech um, uh, and about how the civil war, he, you know, his language isn't quite as robust as Younger's is, but, you know, he talks about how his generation, he feels having gone through the U S civil war was touched by fire in a way that really made their lives more vivid and compelled them to greater senses of purpose, perhaps greater senses of achievement and, a greater capacity to savor the good in life because at young ages they had again been touched by fire and been exposed to so much that was bad. So when I first kind of came across Ernst Younger's Storm of, Storm of Steel, you know, I hadn't read a lot of writing about that. I'd read the First World War literature. Uh, you know, I'd read plenty of stuff about Vietnam, which I would say most of the Vietnam writing kind of adheres to that arc. You know, but Younger was saying something different. And he, you know, again, his bio, he served, uh, he was an infantry officer, served all four years on the Western Front in the trenches, ended the war Lee as a stormtroop commander, which were these are the, you know, elite German stormtroopers who wore body armor and would uh, and would try to penetrate segments of the Allied lines to, to breach them open with hand grenades and shovels and trenches and really brutal fighting. And he was, I think, one of 19 company grade or lower officers and soldiers to earn the Pour Le Merite, which was at that time Imperial Germany's highest award equivalent to their Medal of Honor, but only 19 of something they typically reserved for more senior officers. Um, so that was how I was first introduced to his work. And then he kind of goes on, gets out of the war, you know, writes his memoir, self-publishes his war memoir. It does very well. Um, but then goes on to have this sort of like, prolific and incredibly 
wide ranging uh, literary career. Uh, you know, this guy interested, you know, interested, you know, in many, many topics, not exclusively literature. Um, and then is also sort of difficult to ideologically pin down. Uh, he's sort of kind of, he, you know, he moves around a lot. The, right. the Nazis <laughs> court him in the 1930s. Um, he, you know, is not pro-Nazi, but he is also a conservative thinker. So he's sort of in this weird spot uh, in the 1930s. He yeah. is uh, part of a, a group, uh, along with people like Carl Schmidt, uh, most notably who he has this long correspondence with. Uh, Spengler is another one who's, who's part of this group, who are known as the conservative revolutionaries. And Junger is in this very strange position where he is, in some ways... So he has a brief flirtation with the NSDAP, with the National Socialist Party. And then he has, uh, after that, he becomes, uh, uh, he goes with the, the sort of Strasserite wing, uh, sort of national Bolsheviks, uh, German equivalent. And uh, and and he, he is sort of to the right of the Nazis in some ways, uh, but he becomes very anti-Hitler and anti-Nazi in in a way that doesn't involve breaking with the right, but has this sort of esoteric dimension to it for many years. And it frankly kind of not fully reconciled aspect to it, but you know, he's because he's such a celebrity and because at one point he's signing books to Hitler he has this degree of uh, protection around him, um, yeah. but you know he's suspected. Sorry, he's suspected of being part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. Anybody else would have been uh, rounded up because of that. But he has this sort of celebrity that protects him, um, yeah. and that's for the weird stuff after the war. Sorry, Phil. Okay. But at the same time, you know, his son is basically killed by Hitler. That yes, guy with like he's a he's an interesting guy because he's a guy with like all these con all these you could call them contradictions. You know, I just look at them. He's sort of you know he kind of goes his own way on a lot of stuff. He like, goes his own ways, man. You could say that again. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the manifesto for today is on pain, which he published in 1934. Um, so. It's interesting, sort of, you know, you, you touched on that he's going his own way. After 1933, he sort of had a, kept a, a sort of distance. Uh, he refused all honors, including literary honors, offered him after 1933. Um, and would, would later write a novel, uh, allegorical novel that was seen as a, a sort of critical of the Nazis that, um, uh, you know, the sort of official Nazi paper said that he was flirting with a bullet to the head and supposedly, you know, he was spared, but because Hitler, you know, admired his military service. Um, but yes, this is this, he, he's had come back from the war and, um, was, I mean, like a lot of people trying to sort of take what he had seen there and experienced there. And, um, uh, I guess, make something of it or find some sort of like existential validation, but it had changed his relationship to the society that he was a part of. This, um, you know, one of the things about his writing about war, he is, you know, um, 
you know, certainly not anti-war in, in, in the ways that a lot of writers are, but he also doesn't, um, he doesn't gloss over the really sort of um, horrific aspects of World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or the, the, the way in which it could be sort of extremely dehumanizing, right? He, um, he wants to describe sort of military machines reducing men to a kind of charcoal, which is hurled under the glowing cauldron of war so as to keep the work going. Um, right, but I mean, to be clear, that's not a negative description coming from right. you. So the, right. the dehumanization and the mechanization is not for him, uh, this is not a, a, an indictment of warfare. It's essential to its nature, and it's th- therein lies right. the nobility of it. Well, you know, right. so there's the idea like, you know, like Carl Morlantes writes about this that there are some people who are like born warriors and he doesn't, and he doesn't mean in like in a romantic macho way, but just saying there are certain personality types that do well in those type of experiences of heightened conflict, heightened, heightened sensory experiences. And like, when you look at Younger's life, like he was before the war, he was in like the von der Vogel movement you know, just sort of like a young people's movement that like roamed around the countryside, kind of adventurers. And he tries to... Bohemian, yeah. yeah. Bohemian. And he goes and he tries to enlist in the French Foreign Legion, you know, before the First First World War. Like, so he, you can see this as a person who, you know, it's not as though the war made him into who he was. He kind of was who he was. And then the war was the quintessential manifestation uh, the quintessential experience for him to manifest all of these qualities. And he does so. And I think most miraculous of all, like manages to survive. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote that sort of gets at this well, not from one pain, but from another book battles and inner experience. The battle of the machines is so colossal that man almost completely disappears before it often already caught in the force fields of the modern battlefield, it seemed to me strange and scarcely believable that I was witnessing world historical events. Combat took on the form of a gigantic, lifeless mechanism and swept an icy, impersonal wave across the ground. It was like the cratered landscape of a dead star, lifeless and radiating heat. And yet, beyond, behind all this is man. Only he gives the machines their direction and meaning. It is he that spits from their mouths bullets, explosives, and poison. He that elevates himself in them like birds of prey above the enemy. He that sits in their stomach as they stalk the battlefield spewing fire. It is he, the most dangerous, bloodthirsty, and purposeful being that the earth has to carry. And that sort of movement in that passage from the sort of um, technology of war, and he's extremely interested in technology, um, through to the sort of the man, the dangerous, bloodthirsty, purposeful being behind it all um, is sort of one of the, one of the things that starts him on his sort of trajectory. But then after the war, he starts kind of applying this analysis. And you mentioned that he was this kind of guy before the war and the war was just like the sort of most pure, allowed him to sort of find that most purely. He starts applying that same sort of attitude towards the society as a whole, right? Um, and he starts writing a series of essays um, and which have this sort of philosophical bent about them. Um, and On Pain, which we're going to be discussing, is one of these. Um, Jake, do you want to talk about you? You, you? you have been interested in this book for a long time. You're 
Oh, yeah. Actually, it was Roy Scranton who introduced me to this book. I, I can't remember exactly what context, but it was almost... I mean, I, I don't think I'd been back from Iraq for more than a year. Uh, maybe maybe a year and a half or something like that. And I had already begun to write stuff that... And I'd begun to write fiction, some of which... Um, went into uh, the story I had in our anthology, Fire and Forget, that was in part about this idea of being subsumed into this machinery of warfare and, and the feeling of that and the experience of that. And I, and I read this book and I, I was, I, so it must've been 2007 or 2008. And I was, uh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's one of those books that, uh, suggested to me a, an, an entirely new language, sort of a, a new vocabulary of feeling and experience. maybe like reading Storm of Steel was for Elliot in the sense that it was this sort of counter narrative, right? Like if you'd read on the Western front, all quiet on the Western front or the, the sort of uh, the, the tragic poetry of the first world war, the, this was something so different and you might not have even considered it possible. It was almost profane to suggest something like this on pain has some of that also. And it's written in a totally unceremonious way. He has a very, a style that's both terse and very expressive at the same time. But, uh, there's very, uh, there's something very cold about it. Um, cold and yet bursting with emotion, but it's like emotion that the, that is somehow external to the writer or, or emotion that the writer is channeling without fully feeling himself, something like that. But the book had a very profound effect. I mean, it was probably one of the first things I read that I think constituted a coherent uh, critique of the kind of value system and ethos of liberal individualism mm -hmm. that made sense to me as a veteran, having just come back from the war, I, it just clicked for me in a way and it began, became, uh, began a long, a long period of study of Junger and, and, uh, you know, the pamphlets on pain, the worker, uh, the forest passage are, are, I, I think powerful Forced Passage, not so much. Maybe you could skip that one, but uh, On Pain is very powerful. But his fiction and his sort of short uh, feuilletons and uh, this sort of short um, uh, ruminative essayistic writing that he does, it, 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 it goes into all of these places that you that makes sense in retrospect, starting from on pain, but you could never anticipate starting from on pain. So like the late novels in per 
particular after the war when he's taking a lot of psychedelic drugs and he's starting <laughs> to have these more metaphysical uh, experiences. He eventually uh, converts to Christianity late in life but um, and comes to accept the existence of God. But he's writing these novels, not, not just on Marble Cliffs, which is the one Phil mentioned before that's the sort of anti-Nazi allegory. But he, there are a series of these sort of cryptic allegorical novels which are almost like there's you know who they remind me of in certain ways it's a little bit of a weird comparison but uh gene wolf you know the Catholic mm. science fiction writer yeah. it's like very very dense cryptic allegory that um is sort of science fiction but it's like religious science fiction or, or something like that. But yeah, that was my introduction to On Pain and it really stayed with me. And I, I've come back to that text. And last year I, I gave, or two years ago or something, I gave a speech at the, uh, uh, for an event from Telos magazine and Telos uh, publishing house brought this book out in translation. Um, so I've had a long relationship with this, but uh, enough about, about me and on pain, we should get into the text itself. Right. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, it starts out, um, basically saying pain is the measure of man, right? Um, that pain, which is something, uh, <laughs> you know, we sort of want to avoid, it is, you know, there's several great and unalterable dimensions that show a man's stature. Pain is one of them. It is the most difficult in a series of trials one is accustomed to call life, right? That, um, that is ultimately what we, you know, the first thing we have to measure ourselves up against, right? It's unavoidable. It disregards our values. Um, there's a sort of, um, Pain repudiates our values is that pain repudiates our values is easily hidden in times of peace. But yet we already begin to reel when a joyful, wealthy or powerful man is stricken by the most ordinary afflictions. Um, It sort of reminds me of how like the um, COVID became real to people when Tom Hanks got it. Right. Um, And he distinguishes the, the sort of the age of security when there was this kind of like, optimistic, um, you know, 19th century hope that the progress of reason, uh, could, uh, could ultimately conquer pain, um, which he ultimately thinks of as sort of moving us really just into kind of like Nietzsche's the last man, right. Uh, a sort of soft bourgeois existence, um, focused purely on the body, right. Um, with nothing more meaningful and, and not even on the body in a hedonistic sense, but in like a, in a post hedonistic sense for like the, you know, you've long since reached the point of diminishing returns and it's all about just like small meek comfort, you know, the, the kind of, <laughs> and avoidance know, of pain. I think it's right. I think yeah, it's the avoidance of pain. Bug men. I think it's important to contextualize like when Younger is writing this too, because he's writing it, you know, a decade plus after the first world war and we're entering what clearly seems to be the second world war. And there's this like desire to understand the 
the perpetuation of the industrialized warfare and the fully industrialized state that everybody knows is coming. So I, I read on pain too. And right. it's almost like it's a futurist context. He's like, okay, mm-hmm. we got a glimpse of this in the first world war. And now we feel as though we're going to see the full realization of the industrialized and totalitarian state in the second world war and whatever comes out of it. And on pain is sort of his, yeah. you know, his, his arch document on what the virtues are going to be in those societies. Yeah. And, and, and also that like, it's already here in some ways. We just, yeah. we don't, don't think about it. And that sort of goes to his bit about technology. You know, there's this bit where he says that, um, you know, it's, it's really telling what, um, you know, what are the things that are no longer like where we reveal ourselves in, in, in the desk that we don't even bother to account for anymore. Right. And he talks about like, you know, when trains were starting, everybody was like, Oh, they're going to be railway accidents. Maybe this will be dangerous. He's like, now we never think about that. It's not that those don't happen anymore. It's not that, you know, deaths in mining or deaths in air, air, um, uh, aircraft or traffic accidents don't happen. Like all those predictions came true. It's just that, um, we don't care. Uh, there's a bit where And the state has sanctioned that. The state right. has sanctioned that. And that is evidence of the power of the state. Right. The victims claimed by technological processes seem unavoidable because they conform to our type, i.e. to the worker type. The worker type rushes in to fill the empty spaces left behind by the professional trades and conveys to him his peculiar values, right? And so there's this sort of like, you know, the, the world is becoming organized more and more in a kind of instrumental rationalized way right um and whereas before you know you might have like gills with the individual craftsmen or whatever now you have sort of interchangeable workers as part of a work process right um where it's assumed some will die right um that this is just sort of the way that modern the modern economy and modern society operates and we ignore that as part of the process as a necessary part of the process and only concern ourselves with the outcomes. Right? And if you're a, if you're a liberal individualist, right. that, that represents, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, is dehumanizing in a negative sense for Junger, that's dehumanizing in a positive sense. The, the, I, don't it's po- I don't know if it's positive. I think he's just sort of saying it, as it is like he talks about and well, he calls that like desensitization He calls it coldness. He writes a lot about coldness. Is the word I think that is positive for him. I think that coldness whereby one except like, look, this is the, his idea of total mobilization, right? But what he, it is positive for him in that he, if you look at his life, he writes a lot about courage Mm. and he looks at courage as being something that up to this point, has been a virtue that people apply and its application is used to further the liberation of the individual. Right. Individual yeah. applies right. the courage to assert the, the liberation of, you know, mankind, but by mankind, we mean you know, individuals within mankind being able to, to pursue. Right. And he basically still believes in the virtue of courage, but he says, now we take that courage and we subvert its application to this, collective, fully mobilized society, which is one of the things I think is interesting in this text is how the, the use of courage combined with the use of that coldness 
is something that people have found lots of like antecedents and then, you know, in like jihadism later on and suicide yeah. bombers. Yeah. Days. And this is, this is Russell Berman, who's the editor of Telus, who published this um, at the time explicitly makes the connection to jihadism. And it's, well, it's, it's impossible not to, cause he literally talks about a suicide. Right. Yeah. He talks but, like, but you wouldn't necessarily connect the ethic Right, like the the suicide bomber part is obvious, but the ethic is not necessarily obvious. But I think that what you're describing, Elliot, is that he, having experienced the battlefield in the First World War, and having a, a both a classical sense of the virtue of courage and a Nietzschean sense of the virtue of the exertion of will is looking for what that means in a modern technological mass society. And his conclusion that it changes over the years, and I've written about this uh, in a few different contexts, but the conclusion he's or or the, the idea he's at when he writes on pain is that it's only through this sort of ego annihilation where one coldly submits oneself in a kind of, jihadist submission sense one submits oneself totally to the bomb to the machine to the total mobilization that's what constitutes courage for him in this period when he's writing this like it that changes but and to show his prescience i mean it's not just suicide bombers in the 21st century i mean he he in in on pain writes about uh, human man Japanese torpedoes. I mean, a yeah. decade plus before. Or yeah, it's astonishing. Man, manned planes can then be constructed as airborne missiles, which from great heights can dive down to strike with lethal accuracy the nerve centers of enemy resistance. The result is a breed of men that can be sent off to war as cannon fodder, right? And, I, you know, I think for him, you know, there's this sort of, he, he, he has utter contempt for the sort of soft life that is merely seeking. And you're right, Jake, it's not hedonistic. I think it's like relief from pain. Right. Right. And, and he's like, the best that we've gotten to is in that, like in the age of security, as he calls it, the best place that you get to for him is boredom. Right. Which he says is just pain, like distributed slow, really slowly it's over. Dissolved in time. Yeah. Dissolved in time. Now the the you know on the other hand you have um, you know you have the suicide bomber or you know the worker the miner dying you know to for for you know mining or whatever you know I I, I read this and I think of is an interesting uh, Samuel Adler Bell uh, piece about Amazon and like sort of Amazon workers resistance because Amazon employees um, they've kind of use technology to have this incredibly sophisticated, essentially surveillance of their own employees where everything, including their bodily movements is tracked. Right. And, you know, it's not that (laughs) submitting yourself for the greater good of, you know, Amazon in this example would be for younger. Excellent. But he does value this, you know, colder way of seeing where you're able to view the body as an object um, that you subsume to higher goals. And then the question is, what are the higher goals that you're going to? Um... <laughs> That's the question. right? And, and, and he, he's not an individualist who thinks, you know, you can't just have a heroic 
uh, worldview and declare it ex cathedra, he says, right? Like you need to have a community where there's a system of meaning um, that can give sort of purpose. And for him, all of that is being leached away in this like increasingly industrialized, instrumentalized society. I mean, like if you read sort of Jacques Galul and the sort of uh, about the technological society, it feels very much building off of this um, where kind of all the old values are being converted into means to kind of mostly material ends, right. But not, not always. Um, and that for him is this sort of essentially nihilistic place that the culture's in, in, but we can't go back for him. You know, you sort of need to dive further into that to get out the other side. But Phil, he says, cause you talked about boredom and he yeah. calls it boredom basically. Says, and this is one of my favorite passages. He says, boredom is nothing other than the dissolution of pain and time. Pain, hidden influence also comes to light in the feeling of embitterment. The soul's pain is of an inferior kind. It is among the sicknesses causing a rejection of sacrifice. And then he goes on for a second. And then it says, a sense of deep mistrust also has its place here. The feeling of being demoralized by malicious ploys, whether in relation to economic, intellectual, moral, or racial matters. This feeling pours out into a state of general indictment, into a literature of the blind who are constantly in search of those responsible. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil. All the mayhem I have caused, and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. Right. And that, and that perfectly goes, and he, he, he pinpoints psychology, too. It's like one of the, <laughs> you know, one of the things you have refuge to in the age of security, but that it doesn't it doesn't, um, it doesn't give your life meaning. It doesn't actually satisfy you. It doesn't pain give you life meaning. Right. Pain. Yeah. For him, pain and sacrifice. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, that, uh, and that's what's, um, <laughs> that same chapter has like, <laughs> it's, uh, the essay is divided up into little sections. It's got like this, it's like sort of sort of pro-life argument in the middle of it, but it's like the most peculiar pro-life argument um, because uh, you know, sort of the normal, you know, American political divide on abortion is um, uh, from a broadly like humanist perspective, like the autonomy and equality of the woman, their ability to choose, and then the life of the child on the pro-life side for him. uh, (laughs) He argues uh, his problem with abortion is that it's, the safest and most pitiful method of killing. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, to a guy who killed people in the First World War. It's not, it's not honest enough. It's, it's like it's if you really a child, you should birth the child and then shoot it. You know, like right. it's it's a it's a it's a very very Ernst Younger style of argument. Uh, but, I mean, anyway. I think what's interesting is that if you look at the if you look at On Pain over the course of his life. Like his views evolved. That's why it's important to like view this in terms of the 1930s. By like right. you know, 1970s and 80s, he's not like going on and on about, hey, have you read my, have you read On Pain that I wrote in the 1950s? <laughs> like he, he, you know, he goes in a lot of different directions over his life. So let me, let me just read something briefly because I, I have uh, written specifically about this in the past. So, um, so, uh, you know, I'm describing uh, Junger, and actually there's a, a very good book by an historian named Jeffrey Herf, who identifies the conservative revolutionaries who Junger's a part of his, part of this uh, movement of what he calls um, uh, reactionary modernism, excuse me. Uh, Herf writes, Junger represents a new kind of political romanticism, one that links te- technology to the primordial forces of the will. Um, And now this is me. Earlier German reactionaries sought to restore a pastoral order broken by industrialization, but Junger charged headlong in the opposite direction into technological change. He reimagined the conservative opposition to liberal individualism through an apotheosis of man and machinery. And then I I go on to say that this sort of prefigured um, transhumanism and some of this yeah. technological stuff. Acceleration, still, accelerationism, tech very much so. And to, to pick back up, still right. history and especially modern German history. Well, here I don't need I don't need to read that whole thing. But the mm-hmm. the the thing it ends on is this, which I do want to read because it sort of I think traces like the arc, uh, particularly between what he's writing about in On Pain. And then where he ends up in the late novels like Umsville, for instance. And it's Junger began with a wish to see individualism subsumed in a totalizing state geared perpetually toward war. But he ended his life trying to save the individual from authoritarian mass society through the cultivation of a remote inner life. That's from this essay for the baffler on uh, the 3D gun printing, uh, techno, Baudrillard, quoting anarchist Cody Wilson. Um, and, you know, that that is, he ends up in this place that you could not anticipate from On Pain. And yet, if you read back from where he ends up to On Pain, it all makes sense, right? Like you can see the whole arc there but you couldn't project forward. Uh, I don't think, and there is the intervention of psychedelics, which definitely <laughs> bend that narrative arc, uh, you know, through a prism somehow <laughs> for sure. Um, but the individual, you know, he's wrestling. Look, see, part of what's so interesting to me about on pain is that it's not just romantic or philosophical or ideological. He's trying to understand the machinery of society. Right. And part of what he's saying is not he's not just rejecting liberal individualism on German romantic grounds. Right. There are all these 19th century rejections of liberal individualism that 
are not based on industrial mass society. Um, and they're, they're much more based in, you know, philosophical traditions and particularly this kind of German romantic tradition and German romantic nationalist tradition. Junger has something to do with that. He's not, he's, is a part of that, but he's also specifically trying to understand what does individual, like if you're involved in trench warfare and you're an individual hero in the trenches, what does that mean to be an individual hero in the, for what? Well, it's like, like he knows what the machine is. So he knows that there's the machine out there. It's like he's seen the knows machine. That there, he's seen the, exactly. the machine, like more than exactly. any machine. And he knows the, and now we've like, the war's over and we've backed off the machine. But like reading on pain, you're like, he knows the machine is lingering out there. It's like a beast. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. He knows it's coming back. Machine is coming back. And he's like, and I know what humanity is. And before humanity was all about courage and the the emancipation of the individual. And he just knows that like, that's not going to, that's when that goes up against the machine, that doesn't work. So how do you take, how do you feed humanity into the machine in a way that makes sense? I mean, it's it's seriously like a don't, it, you know what? What's the line? Uh, don't beat it, join it, or whatever. If you can't right, beat it, join it. it. it the, sort of, it's sad. It, it, the book is not. It's almost like elegiac because yeah, yeah. it's not like he's gleefully saying this is great. He's saying the machine's out there. You cannot change the machine. Right. This is where we have arrived at. I've seen it, and it's and that's why it's important that this is read in nineteen in nineteen thirty because he's like because it's coming again. And so, yeah. how does the society and how do people organize themselves? I don't say to survive. I would say to thrive. As an yeah. organism, because the individual means nothing, because you can't assure the individual in the face of the machine. The, the, the age of technology is coming, right? He calls it. Um, we're approaching the point where a news report, public warning, or imminent threat needs to reach us within minutes. Special forms of discipline are hidden behind the entertaining aspect of communication technologies, right? But when he talks about the technology that's coming, Phil, like in our minds, we say technology. And I think, you know, we think like, you know, iPhone 15 and like something like that. For him, technology is like synonymous with mass industrial carnage. I, th- I think. When I yeah. read Technology is, is synonymous with mass industrial carnage in which, to which we are not spectators, but into which we are absorbed. So the, right. the famous line is, technology is our uniform. Right. And I mean, look, we're talking about like, why did this resonate with us, Elliot? I don't know. Oh, you said you read it in what? You were you were still in the service, right? So a well, decade ago. No, I read this after I, I read On Pain after I left the service. Okay. So I read it, like I'm saying, like right when I got back from Iraq, you know, and I, to read a line like technology is our uniform that was written in 1934 mm. It just seemed to me to better understand certain facets of the certain essential, defining, nearly ineffable characteristics of the modern battlefield better for me than like that Vietnam War literature or even the World War II literature. There was something about this that seemed to me to better capture what I had seen. But I didn't read this. This, I mean, parts of the violent components of this resonated mm-hmm. with me because of my wartime experiences. Mm-hmm. But this resonates with me more than anything, just as a, a human. Like this, this line, right? Uh, the idea behind this peculiar organic construction drives the logic of the technical world a small step forward by transforming man in an unprecedented way into one of its component parts. Mm-hmm. 
you know, like look at your phone, mm. you know, look at all of these tech companies, like, you know, the whole, the classic thing trope with Facebook, right? You know, what do we sell? We're selling you, you know, that's their commodity. Yeah, you're, if, you're, if you're not paying, right? uh, yeah. So transforming that right. into one of its component parts, uh, all the social media, like we have been yeah. transformed into the component part of the company. Like that is which, happening. Which, which is why like that quote from 1934, right? where he talks about the special forms of discipline hidden behind the entertaining aspect of communication technology. I mean, he's seeing that in radio, right? right. I mean, how much more sophisticated is it now? So sophisticated. You know, and, and he says, um, yeah, I, I like this. The world is becoming more shallow and superficial. New generations are growing up far removed from all our inherited traditions. And it is an amazing feeling to see these children, many of whom will experience the year 2000, right? And, um, and so we asked, like, uh, is this the opening act of uh, the spectacle to come in which life appears as the will to power and nothing else, right? Because the only things beyond doubt are the destitution of the old cults, the imp- impotency of culture, and the wretched mediocrity of the actors, right? And so it's like all the things, the old cults, <laughs> all the things that used to give us meaning are being leached out. We're developing technologies which you know, include these four forms of discipline, right? Um, and the culture, the culture can't tame or restrain. Right. Um, or and so, for that matter. And then, and then he says, you know, um, uh, an enormous, enormous organizational capacity can exist alongside a complete blindness vis-a-vis values, belief without meaning, discipline without legitimacy. One grasps why one yearns to see the state in such an instrumental age, not as the most universal instrument, but as a cultivate, uh, cultic entity, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I think what his book does, which is you know why I think it's so relevant, is I can think of a few other books where you're seeing such a straight line drawn between you know the industrialization of the 20s and the 30s to like right now. I mean, right now, there's so much in this book that predicts right now. So let me, let me read one other passage, which I think sort of pivots to something maybe a, a bit less um, obvious in, in what he's writing and something that he gets wrong, a failure of prediction on his part. So he writes, the growing objectification of our life appears most distinctly in technology, this great mirror which is sealed off in a unique way from the grip of pain. Technology is our uniform. The idea that the technology is sealed off in a unique way from the grip of pain was clearly written before the advent of social media, right? And part of what social media exists to do is to reproduce um, reproduce these atavistic collective rituals of pain and suffering and grievance and sacrifice uh, algorithmically. And it exists to do that, not because Mark Zuckerberg is a, you know, a Russian agent or because the bots control it or because Twitter is uh, designed to be evil. It exists to do that because we have these intrinsic primordial connections to these moral dramas and to these dramas involving pain, our own pain, other people's pain. And social media is, I think you can witness nearly every day of the week now has 
far from well I, I, I here's the interesting thing in in one way it's made us uh like spasmodically subjective you know like de-objectified us totally so that we're nothing but these like wretched balls of nerves who are spasming from one convulsion of shallow emotion to the next. On the other hand, insofar as there are no moments of reflective silence between those convulsions of shallow emotion, insofar as like there's barely a subject behind those shallow emotions and we're just being turned into bots by these algorithms, we are being objectified. But the thing that Junger can't see, and how could he see it at the time, though maybe he should have seen it because it's very much like the Nietzsche and the last man thing, is that pain, far from being the last value, gets commodified. So the scarcity of pain becomes a currency. And but, you know, he literally writes that after World War II. What does he write that? Pain is the only authentic currency of our age. No, no, right. But, right. but he is saying it in the sense that it's difficult to acquire. And it's a, it, it, right. I'm saying that, whereas Junger is saying that it's the only authentic currency because people don't want to experience pain. The whole point Junger is making is that like this bourgeois individualistic last man wants to avoid pain at all costs. And therefore it's the only authentic value left because it's the thing that requires that you, you sacrifice your own comfort. You know, you have to be willing to sacrifice the highest uh, value of individualism, which is your own pleasure. But individualism, liberal individualism, which has this incredible world conquering ability to subsume its own antithesis, you know, liberal individualism eats up the value of pain spits it out in the form of this counterfeit pain and victimization. I mean, look all around you. We live in a culture, a cultural landscape where people of every type are brandishing various forms of pain. Therapeutic culture is all about this, right? Like this is, you know, in a shallow sense, this is like the campus safe space victim culture uh, stuff. But in a, in a deeper sense, you know, we, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about like what, what the orientation of our, much of our sort of cultural and political machinery rhetorically, what it's focused on discursively, at least what it's focused on, you know, it is rewarding expressions of pain as sort of uh, a high currency, which means that there's all this incentive for people to tokenize and represent their sure. own pain. Well, that's, that's, I think that's it. But like, but when you look at it, younger is talking about pain that in a, a liberal society is designed, a classically liberal society is designed. So the entire society it, is geared to avoid to the avoidance of pain for its members. The job of the society is to avoid pain for the members of that society. What he's saying is that in the industri- in 
the post-World War I industrial age and moving forward, he predicts that the successful society is one that will not attempt to avoid pain, but one that will embrace pain and gear itself to pain. And that's what, he, that's what he's saying. And then if you take this step forward and you look at our moment, you know, we talk about you know, pain being the one currency. We've created a pain machine. And I agree with you, Jake. Like we have created pain machines. Our society is all we look at is the pain of others all day and the trauma of others all day. The challenge is we're still in a construct where we believe, so we've created so much more pain, but we still believe the job of our society is to make it so we avoid that pain. So if we're not avoiding pain, society has failed us. But we've, we've produced so much of it, whether real or imagined, that we cannot possibly Mostly imagined. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing because we've produced so much of it. You're exactly right. Like we've mass produced pain. We've mass produced symbols of pain and discursive expressions of pain, which the sort of cultural landscape is oriented around. While at the same time, real pain, genuine suffering, we do everything possible to shield ourselves from. Right? Like this is why. Um, you know, like the real suffering inherent in the operation of American society is obviously not something we're confronted with. And, you know, people don't want to like look at, you know, the American underclass. We're not like seriously wanting, we're not seriously wanting to look at what's caused by not just wars, forget about just American wars, but the day-to-day operations of, uh, you know, a, a, a M, uh, not an Amazon factory, excuse me, but an Apple factory in China. Like we don't want to look at the, the people who we've hired out as our new industrial proletariat. We want to see what's going on. We don't want to see what's going on in our own foster care system, let yeah. alone. So, I mean, it does all of these things at the same time. This is not like me delivering an indictment of American society. Well, but, but that, those goes, go hand in hand. So, you know, Jürgen talks about sort of the like zone of sensitivity, right. As being opposed to, you know, the sort of the old like heroic or cultic world, you embrace pain, you sort of in the heroic sense, you went out into battle or whatever in the kind of cultic sense, you would mortify the body. Right. Whereas, you know, in the zone of sensitivity, you just become ever more acutely attuned to sources of suffering. Right. Um, uh, and, which sort of turns you ever inward um, and thus allows you to avoid, uh, I think, some of those questions, right? Um, if you produce that sort of um, intense apparatus for generating um, generating sensitivity to your own pain that you then broadcast, um, that is often, I think, at odds with the sort of structural things that you're, you're talking about. Hey, since we're all drinking, um, or Phil and I are drinking, let me ask you, uh, there's a way in which, obviously, the sort of worship of pain, not that worship is the wrong word to describe what Jungers engaged in, but... It's, it's the only common term of meaning we have, right? Valorization, something like yeah. that. Elevation. Something. Exaltation. Yes, yes. Like something that's both cold and like exaltation. Cold exaltation, whatever. 
obviously there's a kind of fascistic, creepy element to that that um, you know you want to watch out for. At the same time, that's where I mean, it ends. Is any is it, are any of us going to say that we don't respect another man's ability to endure pain to some extent? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not just some bizarre proto-fascist pre-war thing. He's on to something that exists independent of the technological machinery or in some connection to it. But the value of the ability, the relationship of modern man person to pain. I, I think I think he walked away from a very profound experience and he recognized that in that experience he discovered in himself a thing of value. Right. The ability to endure pain and demonstrate physical courage. And so he knows this is a thing of value that I happen to have and that many, many others have. Right. It is valuable. Now, in the old time, in the old societies, in old classic liberal societies, this thing of value would be used to liberate the self or within the society it would be used to liberate the society for the avoidance of pain and comfort. So the invaders are kept at the gates. We live our comfortable, happy lives. Right. What he saw in the trenches was, there's no avoiding this. Like the machine is out there. Like the beast is coming. There is no way to get away from the destruction. So what is the meaning of this thing of value that I have? This ability to endure pain and through it demonstrate courage. And he basically says it's the collectivization. You, we all have to collectivize our courage, and through and through that collectivization, you know, we endure pain, and that's where the value is. And so the society that can collectivize its courage and collectivize its tolerance for pain will be the successful collective, the successful society. That's a profound point because what you're saying is that if you take that ability to endure pain and you apply it to being merely a gate guard to keeping out the forces that would subject you to pain, the value itself dissipates. Right. Because you know there's no way to avoid those. Because there's together. no way to They're avoid So it's powerful. only by merging it together. And so yeah. many others come out of the First World War, and many of his contemporaries come out of the First World War, and they look at those values, courage, and all of that, and it's, no, it's meaningless. Because at the end of the day, we all just end in puddles of blood. This stuff right. is meaningless. So I view younger, and so much of his writing is, and why it resonates with me is like, and I think it takes guts to write it, is he rejects the meaninglessness. He says, no, I don't care what you say. I don't care how powerful the trends are against this. I still believe that this courage means something. It just has to be transmuted into a new language. And the way he transmutes it is in, we, in a kind of fascistic way. It's like, I'm like, his which is not a small problem. And and in a dehumanizing way, he refuses to renounce courage. Yeah, but he thinks that he's recuperating. You're exactly right in what he thinks he's doing, which is that he thinks that he's recuperating courage by collectivizing it. He's refusing to renounce it altogether. And he thinks that he's recuperating it. But in fact, he's just destroying it in a different way. Yes, but right. so that's why I think it's important to look at this writing and the arc of who he is in his life and his career, because so much, so this fails. Ultimately, the arguments on pain are, are failures in many, many ways, but he keeps at it because ultimately, like, as a, I, I would imagine if you were to sit down with him, the thing motivating him as he's writing on pain is his refusal to renounce that 
courage. Yeah, yeah. He tries to do it on pain in the 1930s and it doesn't really work. But he's still, after the Second World War, is still writing in ways that refuse to renounce that type of courage. He's just finding outlets for it and meaning for it in different ways until he dies. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, man. Good stuff. That's great. Um, we should move on to Elliot. We, we usually say, um, you know, what would it do if you tried to live your life according to this manifesto? It would be very painful. <laughs> you would, so. <laughs> you'd endure a lot of pain. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, do you want me to really? Oh, I can answer that. Yeah, give me a shot. I think that's what I was just saying. It's the, you know, the re- the refusal to renounce, you know, the the value of the individual. It's kind of standing against you know, insurmountable forces, you know, the refusal to renounce individual courage and individual agency, you know, just, you know, despite, you know, despite whatever the, the, you know, the, the system is you're, you're up against or the, the fashionable arguments of the day. Yeah, but the thing is, right. That if you're constructing this new value system around it's not a new value system. His value system, I see, is very consistent. It's trying to understand how this thing that he values fits into a system. So it's not right. a value system, seeing how the value fits into a system, and he's trying to squeeze it in. That's why he thinks that he's, you know, he thinks that he's coldly, analytically. Uh, squeezing it in, but what he doesn't recognize that he, you know, pain is not the only value, right? And yeah. and he he because he recognizes the value of pain, he makes the mistake of denigrating other human values. And in the course of that, if you were to take this seriously, if you were to get you know live this all the way, as it were, what you'd end up doing, which is what happens in societies that do take this seriously is you have to produce more pain. You know, I mean, it's not, it's never as cold and as detached as the, the, the writing suggests. Yeah. It becomes a machinery for producing pain, not just for collectivizing pain. We're saying, I think we're saying two slightly different things. And I agree with <clears throat> what you just said. Uh, yes. I think that, Everything you said, if you were to try to live on pain, the, just the book on pain ends where you said it ends. What I, what I was saying kind of more generally is like, what does it look like if you try to live what I believe is sort of the long arc of Younger's mm-hmm. work? And the long arc of his work is this sort of stubborn, you know, why is the guy so prolific? You know, he's like just keep he's gnawing on many of the same topics. Oh, he also lives to 103. That helps. Yeah. Which helps. But, um, you know, which is that idea of where does this sort of elemental courage kind of fit it fit into you know fit into the just relentless cold universe? That's right, and he never gives that up. And I mean, it's right. still the, he he goes to a. Has anyone read uh, either? Of you read Umsville? No. It is a very difficult book. People pretend it's not; they're lying. It's a difficult book, but it is. Deeply, deeply rewarding, and he, he it, it, just all of which is to say, like he ends up in a very different place, but 
the question, as Elliot is pointing out, like it's always the same thing, actually. He never leaves that. That's always the thing that preoccupies him. Think about it. Think how profound he just, he is like to go all four years as an infantry officer in the Imperial German army on the West. I mean, like Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, there aren't many of those. (laughs) No. And he's, it's such a weird, like the stage, you know, then he's in the Fry Corps after the war. He's like that, but then he's, you know, this, crypto anti-nazi but a right-wing mandarin crypto anti-nazi um like you know strange strange fascinating deeply fascinating life i'm dying slow but the devil trying to rush me see i'm a fool for pain i'm a dummy might cut my head off right after i slip my throat tongue kiss a shark got jealous bitches up in the boat eating peanut butter and jellyfishes on toast and if i get stung i get stoked might choke so we decided um to pair this with something of elliot's um and you can find this online um, it's from his book, Places and Names, which is really superb. Uh, but you can find it uh, at the New York Times as A Battle in Fallujah Revisited. It's sort of a revised version of what's in that book, a sort of shorter uh, version. And this is... Um, so the, the, uh, the reason I, I, I said that Elliot was our, our, our 21st century Junger was this sort of mix of um, battlefield honors and literary distinction. Um, and, um, you know, when, when, when Elliot's, um, second novel was a finalist for the national book award, um, I sort of thought that there would be interest in the, a lot more interest in the literary community that like, you know, how often Elliot is a silver star, I'm sorry, recipient. Um, how often does a guy like that become a finalist for the national book award? Um, not much interest. I think, um, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the writer community's um, sort of understanding necessarily of what that means um, can be pretty well summed up by a tweet uh, from the New York Times where they said, um, uh, previous tweet was, tweet was deleted where we uh, noted that uh, Elliot Ackerman had won the silver medal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Elliot is, um, is, not somebody who talks a lot about um, his military experience. He's the sort of person who certainly could have gone out and written a um, kind of battle memoir of the type that had been written. Um, but the only piece um, uh, that is sort of really directly describing this is this piece that um, actually our mutual editor uh, asked him to write. Uh, this is not something that Elliot immediately came out with. And it is him reflecting on his time in the second battle of Fallujah, which was the most intense urban combat that the Marine Corps had been in since probably way city um, in Vietnam. And it takes the uh, summary of action for his silver star. And then it intersperses it with Elliot's reflections um, or memories um, or perspectives on the types of action that are, are being recounted. Um, 
it is, to my mind, some of the finest writing about combat that the 21st century has produced. Um, and I liked uh, the idea of pairing it with On Pain because it is, it is written in a decidedly different register um, and is a very different tone. Um, do you, would you want to tell us a little bit about writing this piece, Elliot? Sure. I, you know, as you mentioned, like Scott, our shared editor, uh, you know, we'd worked on places and names. The book was, you know, done. We had our manuscript and then we kind of, you know, I was getting ready to go into production and we had a few weeks and he, he just said, Hey, give me a call. And he said, Hey, listen, you know, you in the book, he's like, I think the book's great. He's like, I'm, we're really excited about it. Um, but I feel like I would remiss be remiss if I didn't tell you that, you know, they're, you know, people will read your bio and they'll know that they, you know, you, you'll know that, that you, you know, were awarded that medal and they'll, you know, and they'll want to know like what happened and you, and you, or now they want to know what happened. Like it's very clear you left it out, like that it's not in there. And he's like, and that's fine. And maybe, you know, you've, you know, reasons for making that decision. Uh, but I feel like as your editor, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, I think it would be a better book if you could figure out some way to put that in there. So that's it. That's all he said. And I said, all right, let me think about it. And, um, and I thought about it and I knew that I had this, um, you know, I had that summary of action, like it had been given to me. Um, uh, and I just thought, you know, it's a good, cause I, I, you know, cause I didn't know how to write about it necessarily, you know, in a way that felt authentic. Um, but I had this like key that kind of laid out facts, but it laid them out in this way that had always, you know, when I looked at that document felt like really insufficient, mm-hmm. like, yes, like everything on here happened, but you know, there's so much between the lines and it, that summary of action is, you know, when there's an award, there's two parts, parts of an award. There's the citations. That's what they read. And it has to be like one page. It's just, just a few words. And there's a summary of action. The summary of action is a much longer. I've written many summaries of actions for guys, you know, who served in the, who, who we've awarded medals to. And it's basically like, Hey, this is what happened to the awards committee. This is why the person should be awarded with this medal. Uh, and it's much more, uh, you know, lengthy. So I wanted to go through and kind of annotate, I was like, yeah, I could annotate this summary of action and just put in all the yeah. stuff that I know has never been in here. And so that's basically what I did. I mean, I, frankly, I think I sat down like in the, in the lobby of the Carlisle hotel for three days, like, you know, got a cup of coffee and I like working there and I just sort of like ground it out. And do you want to tell us what, um, what your job was, what the circumstances were, what, what your unit was tasked with doing? Oh, uh, I was a rifle platoon commander in Fallujah. So I was a lieutenant. Uh, in the Marines and uh, when my rifle platoon was at full strength, there were 46 of us and, you know, we took, you know, we took a lot of wounded over the time that we were in the city. Uh, but, um, and uh, you know, the, the battle was a month long battle and it was, you know, all, you know, house to house uh, fighting. So it was, uh, uh, you know, so at moments it was very intense. Yeah. The interesting thing, uh, so my uh, best company commander I ever served with, um, I served under, I was his executive officer, Jeff Emery, then Captain Jeff Emery, um, was in Fallujah at the same time with the 1st Infantry Division, um, which I think was maybe the only Army unit that had a 
the only army infantry unit that had a real combat role in the first battle of Fallujah. I know there were army engineers and stuff. I'm not in there, there were two battalions. There was the second of the second. Okay. I'm forgetting the other one. Cause there's six assault battalions, four okay. army. But anyways, so Jeff was, uh, he was then a platoon leader, mm-hmm. which is the same thing as a platoon commander. It's just army and Marines have different names for it. He was a Lieutenant platoon leader in the first ID at the time. And, you know, I think, uh, I think both his company commander and EXO were killed in battle. He was medevaced back to the States. He got a shrapnel wound to the neck um, and was interviewed about it. And, and anyway, I bring that up, A, because uh, Jeff Emery was a great company commander and, and deserves a shout out. And uh, I have a lot of respect for that guy. But also because what part of what's interesting about um, – I think it's a, like it's sort of a brilliant approach to it to write the summary of action because those citations, like I've written a thousand of those citations myself, and what's interesting about them is that you're both trying to sell the valor, and like e- even or especially in those cases where you feel that somebody has really earned the award and earned the distinction you're trying to sell it and yet can never do it justice. So you're both sort of let, you can't lay it on too thick. Obviously, you know, you have to be honest, but it's like all all of the bullet points are there and yet you wouldn't know anything about the experience from it. The humanity, I would say those citations definitely have within them much of what younger called coldness. Mm. Right. You know, like the are stilted and cold. Listen, yeah. but they are part of a bureaucratic machine. Right. right. That right. coldness is of the machinery. You're writing I, you're writing you're, to a machine. You're writing to a machine. You're part of the machine. Look, you've written them. You've probably both written them. You're part of the machine when you're writing them. Even the guys who I believed in I mean, I put the guys who I thought really deserved it, I mean I put more effort into it, obviously, but you're under a deadline. You have to turn these in. You're writing a lot of them at the same time. It is, I mean, it's a truly bureaucratic process. Um, well, I'll give you the surreality of it. I mean, in Fallujah, we were in that battle. It was towards the end. And we were told, you know, you guys got, hey, you know, I think three weeks into the battle, like, they, they brought in the officers like, hey, you guys need to start writing awards. Right. That's, so right. we were in the city. Right in the battle, writing awards at night or between patrols on a laptop with a little generator next to us, and we would take turns on the laptop and <laughs> our guys up for the awards because you know you got to write you know you got a platoon of forty some guys you're going to write up like fifteen awards and each one is you know five six page I mean it's a lot of writing so it. psychotic and yet I'm not it's like you saying that I'm not surprised by that yeah. at all that totally yeah yeah crazy so, the um the piece starts off in a uh, in a kind of young Aryan fashion, I guess, or, or it strikes a young Aryan note. Um, so the first line of the citation is, Lieutenant Ackerman is enthusiastic, recommended for the Silver Star for his heroic actions during Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah, Iraq, between 10 November and 10 December 2004. His platoon fought in more engagements than any other rifle platoon company. And then you write in your annotation, Two weeks into the battle, my company commander told me that I was both the luckiest and unluckiest lieutenant he'd ever met. 
the luckiest because right out of the gate, I experienced the largest battle the Marine Corps had fought in decades. I was the unluckiest because everything I ever did after that would seem inconsequential. And that's that um, note, which is insisting right off the bat, like, th this is about something valuable, right? Yeah, and I, you know, and listen, I, I, I stand by that, and I will say I've had uncomfortable conversations with other veterans who, you know, might have different views or, you know, or people who have other views about war. So, you know, I, I stick to that, you know, I look at that experience and it was, you know, painful. And I, you know, I, you know, I have dead friend the whole, the whole nine, but I look at that and I will, I will not renounce. I will, I can talk about the bad parts of it. And in many ways, it's easy to talk about the bad parts of it because that's people, people want to hear, but people don't want to hear about the good parts and they get uncomfortable when you talk about the parts where you're like, you know, this made me better. or This was seeing someone behave in this way or seeing courage like this was profound. Uh, people get uncomfortable when you talk about that. Uh, and that's why one of the reasons, I mean, you know, we pick on pain, but one of the reasons I admire younger is he, you know, he, and he really saw that and he never renounces it. His whole life he refuses to renounce it. Yeah. No, I, I think it would just, um, look, part of it is like, for most of us, it was what we thought we were there for on some level. I mean, I, we should be clear too. the silver star, the distance between the silver star and the bronze star is, uh, you know, how would you put it? Enormous, exponential. The Silver Star is a valor award, and the Silver Star is a combat valor award. And the military is less comfortable. I don't know if the Marines are exactly the same as the Army, but the military is generally less comfortable with combat, gives fewer um, combat valor awards than it has in previous wards, in part, yeah. I think, because even the military has absorbed some of the general societal discomfort with the idea of valorizing combat. But that's part of it. And right. the Silver Star, you know, means that you did something valorous in combat, heroic in combat. And that's what all of us were there for on some level. Not all of us got to do that. I didn't get to do that, but I wanted to be close to that. I believed that that was part of it and that makes people uncomfortable. And I think it also makes um, other veterans uncomfortable in the sense that these things are uh, unevenly distributed for obvious reasons. I don't mean just like envy in a, in the sort of pettiest or shallowest sense, but I mean that, if your sense of the war didn't involve that something like that, you, you know, it's a, it, there, there are many different experiences of war. And if you didn't have an experience of war that included something like that in some way, you know, you could uh, look down on somebody who wanted to make too much of that. I think maybe is some of what you have encountered Elliot but I, I understand what you're saying and I I feel that 
way in which like these sorts of stories like also on some level like that there's something exhilarating about war makes people uncomfortable you know you're you're not you're supposed to always couch that in moral terms right you're supposed to say you're supposed to feel the exhilaration you know the story arc is supposed to go that you feel the exhilaration of war and then you're chasing then you learn that that was a bad thing to have felt that way. It's like if you walk into a room and you sit down, someone's like, hey, would you talk with me about the war? And I say, yeah, sure. What do you want to know? You know, What do you, you want to know? And I go, oh, I don't know. And I say, well, will you want me to talk to you about the good stuff or the bad stuff? And I feel like most people will feel much more comfortable. Like, Let's talk about the bad stuff. I'm like, okay, I can talk to you about the bad stuff. I say, you want to talk about the good stuff? And people don't want to talk about, you know, not good like it's fun but you know you you see the full spectrum of human emotion and what humans are capable of doing um and from the you know very depraved to the incredibly valorous and uh and they and they both and they both exist um but sometimes there's a refusal to acknowledge the 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 existence of those positive aspects cuz j- just again cuz it makes it does make people uncomfortable um, and I go back to younger, like imagine younger writes this book, storm of steel in 1921. I mean, it's pretty, I just like it, it, he really, he's really going against his moment when he writes that book and you know, he, but he has all the credibility to write it. I mean, God, God, I mean, it is a bestseller at the time. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of, culturally, you know, what's that? He self-publishes it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, now, you also, you include all these details that, um, I don't know, there, there's a way that you write um, about this. But there are these, like, th- these kind of observations that, I, that you don't really get in younger, right? Um, as wonderful as his style is, uh, you know, in, in, in um you know, one of the, the tags is Lieutenant Ackerman led the platoon with a level of disciplined violence that crushed the enemy and was critical to the company's success. And then you talk about working with his tank crew and right. The tankers I worked with like Britney Spears, the squat crew chief who looked like he was born to fit inside of a tank told me that he played the music because it helped <laughs> everyone in the tank stay frosty. You know? <laughs> or uh, one of the images <laughs> that I love uh, uh, from the piece is so uh you were hit with shrapnel, right? Um, and uh, the the line is, um, we're lobbing grenades around the corners. There's dust everywhere. I unload my pistol into the next room because I'm too scared to step into the room with my rifle. I can hear them inside speaking in gas, shuffling through the debris slowly, grenade by grenade and bullet by bullet, we kill them. For the next few weeks, little pieces of steel work their way out of my skin. Our platoon corpsman, who still has acne, picks them out for me at night, like he's popping pimples. Um, and that image is just fantastic, but also really mundane um, in a rather different way. You know, Junger, when describing um, a grenade fight, describes it as a ballet, right? He would not talk about popping pimples. No. Yeah, popping shrapnel like pimples. <laughs> You know, I mean, to me, that was, you know, if you knew that corpsman, too, he was sort of like, uh, you know, he was a pimply-faced kid. I mean, he's now actually, I mean, technically, you know, he's now a Navy chief. Um, 
which shows you how time passes. But, yeah. you know, I mean, you're all, I guess that bit of language, I mean, to state the obvious is used to suggest the age of everybody involved. Yeah. But there's also something about that that is deflating in some way, right? Or like um, uh, not humanizing, but um, like uh, shrinks it down to a kind of moment. Like, like Phil is saying, Junger describes a ballet, right? A ballet is a, a grand dramatic production somebody, a corpsman sitting next to you picking shrapnel like pimples is a sort of close, familiar encounter. It's a, it's a different choice in how to describe it, no? Yeah, but I think that, to me, feels like the more accurate choice. Um, and I think that language is more honest because I think the thing <laughs> about that type of combat anyone who goes through it knows that uh, it doesn't make the person. It's just something you happen to like go through. Does that make sense? So like, it's not like the, you know, I, let me say, I used to look at a guy, you know, I remember I met a Marine from Vietnam and he had a Navy cross and that guy was Christ on this earth to me because he'd earned a Navy cross. And then I'm sitting there later on and I'm, having conversations about one guy we're going to recommend for a silver star. Another guy we're going to recommend for a Navy cross. My buddy in another platoon was writing up a guy for the medal of honor. I know all these guys and the guy we wrote up for the medal of honor, you know, was a very quirky guy. I mean, he did some legitimately heroic stuff, but he was a very imperfect person. He just had <laughs> to be there on a totally insane day when a bunch of guys were trapped and getting hurt. And he did some pretty heroic stuff, but it didn't change the fact that like, I knew who he was. And he was, uh, you know, booger eating, pimple popping, like type of guy. <laughs> I, uh, I had a, a you, know, you don't want that to get lost. Yeah, but that is individualistic in a way that yeah. you know, would reject. Humanistic in a way, yeah. Be- beautifully good. Yeah. Like the, the, you know, I'm I'm on the side of humanistic individuals yeah. ultimately. Yeah. So, but that's a different. Uh, and this this yeah. is one of the things that I think on pain is missing. Actually, I agree. I agree. Yeah, well, I, and, I, and I, the I, sense of humor too. Yeah, well, you know, for, he's a, he's a German in the nineteen twenties. It doesn't have great jokes, right? Not, pain isn't the true currency. Yeah. It's a sense of humor that's the true currency. I'd say I, I had a, I had a Marine who had to cover like a it was a Medal of Honor ceremony. This guy um, who received the Medal of Honor, um, and uh, he he'd been like. Uh, on like medevac crews, right? And he just would just like go out and bring people back under hot LZs and just do unbelievable stuff. And uh, so everybody shows up and he's like an hour late, everybody's in dress blues. Uh, he like kicks open the door. He's in his just like tattered Vietnam clothes and looks around and goes, oh yeah, all you assholes are here for me, right? <laughs> and Marine stood next to one of the guys who served with him. He was like, yeah, definitely a hero, deserves the Medal of Honor. He's like, but like the fact that he's the biggest asshole I've ever met is related to the things that he did because like, he wouldn't listen to us. Well, it's the same thing. You know, you probably, I mean, you guys experience the same thing. You know, you come back from deployment 
and you know, you quickly realize like the same instinct that like makes the young 19 year old Marine, like get drunk and drive his crotch rocket 80 miles per hour through Jacksonville is the exact same energy and thing and, and, and thing you're harnessing that will, you know, make them run out in the street with a rocket and shoot it through a building when there's a machine gun covering the street, shooting at them. You know, it's the same, you're bottling the exact same stuff. Yep. Yep. The, um, uh, wrap up, but, um, you know, one thing, uh, you're going to talk about it, sort of the decline of the cults, right. Um, and you have, I guess you could call it a cultic object, um, that you talk about at the end of the piece, your uniform, right. Um, that you, you tied up, in a plastic bag, put in your pack, um, and you've still got it. Do you still have it? Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Well, it was just, you know, it's less that specific object. It's the idea of what you do with certain objects. And so, you know, like I have certain objects that I know where they're going. You know, like I have my war watch, like the watch I wore on several deployments. That is my war watch. I, I still wear that watch today. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, I have this watch, you know, when my son turns 18, you know, I'm going to give him this watch um, and that'll stay in my family. Or, you know, I have my medals uh, for my dress uniform. Like I've saved those medals in my mind, those medals are going to go to my daughter when she's older. She'll always keep those medals for me. But then like I have this uniform, that's the uniform I wore during the Fallujah battle. When I took it off, everyone was washing the, you know, some guys were washing the uniform, some guys threw them away, some guys kept them. And I like kept mine. I put it in a plastic bag and I kept it in the bottom of my pack and I like didn't want to wash it. That didn't seem like the right thing to do. And I wasn't going to throw it away. That didn't seem right. So I just kept it in this bag and it's always been in that bag. And I brought it back to the States with me. I thought like when I came back in the States, like, you know, they might take it away as contraband because it was so gross and infected. But, you know, it has, you know, it has bloodstains on it, um, mine and others, and I keep it. And I don't know what to do with this thing because I'm not going to give that to my son. I'm not going to give it to my, you know, who wants this thing? Um, and so to me, I bring up the uniform because the uniform is sort of the part of the experience that doesn't fit anywhere. And there are always going to be these parts of the experience that just don't really seem to fit. And I think it's the same thing kind of like when I think about younger you know, he had this very profound experience and he finished the war in a time where in some regards, his experience just went so counter to the overarching narrative, but he refused to renounce his experience or to, you know, kind of throw out the old uniform as it were. And I think he seemed to spend years and years and years and years trying to figure out where some of those ideas fit. Hmm. I, I think that's a great place to end on that note Elliot Any- thanks uh, thank you so much for coming on man this was great that was fun yeah and uh, Elliot's Elliot's got a new book out uh, Red Dress and Black and White which is superb um, and great uh, protest scenes in Istanbul actually um, which are uh, well I thought we weren't talking about the moment, Phil. We're not talking about the moment. <laughs> um, this is just, not a topical podcast. 
Just fa- just fantastic writing. I'll 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 give this. This, yeah, is really how, really this is how this is how Elliot introduces a character. I love this. How do you put Murat Yassar? A Murat Yassar, yeah. Murat Yassar usually. Uh, <clears throat> so he's like, um, he there's this photographer that he's he knows his wife is having an affair with. Murat Yassar do- usually doesn't smoke in the house, but he's waiting. It's almost midnight, and he knows that she is out with him. He's seen Peter's photographs, and he finds them tasteless. Because he is an architect, Murat's taste is a matter of business, for it has been proven in the marketplace. His family name, Yassar, attaches itself to enough of Istanbul's acreage that he hears it spoken as a destination more than he hears it spoken in reference to his person. Yeah, I love that. Um, so, uh, yeah, Elliot's great. Uh, check out this. Um, uh, and all of his other books uh, that he produces at a unseemly pace and which are disgustingly good. So. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>